1979, uh, a new game came out on the market, a board game called Trivial Pursuit. Many of you will recognize the game by that name, even though many of you may not have been around in 1979. But in 1984 alone, over 20 million games were sold. And by 2004, over 88 million games were sold. And that's just the original version. It spawned off a number of other Trivial Pursuit versions as well. Uh, that game made a, lot of, made a few people a lot of money. None as much as the original four developers, who I'm not sure if you know this, maybe you probably do, they were all Canadians. One of those four was a man by the name of Ed Werner, who... Uh, was from the Niagara region in Ontario. My wife Marlene is from that area, but I also have an uncle that lives there, uh, my mom's younger brother. His name is Uncle Al, and Al had his, uh, he's older now, he's retired, but Al, when he was uh, working, had his fingers in all kinds of ventures. He had a, a plumbing business, a heating and air conditioning business at one time, and then he got into real estate. And in that line of work in real estate, my uncle became an acquaintance of Ed Werner's. Well, after Ed struck it rich, he, he bought right on the shores of Lake Ontario a sprawling section of land, and he built a, a huge mansion there. Besides using his money to invest in other things, Ed started collecting all kinds of things. He was into, especially in collecting some really neat old cars which he kept on his property, as well as uh, planting grapes and, and getting into a lot of other business adventures. He used the money that was kept on coming in from Trivial Pursuit to get into a number of other things. Well, when Ed got to the point that he couldn't stay on top of his property anymore, he couldn't keep track of what was going on, then he, he started looking for someone to manage that property on his behalf. And, the, and, the, and he needed someone just to, just to take care of the stuff that he had accumulated and to, and to take care of his property especially. And that's where Ed turned to my Uncle Al. Not only was Uncle Al good at managing people and not only did he have lots of experience in real estate and in property management and uh, as a successful real estate agent and so he became well known in that regard. But as a Christian, he was also known for his honesty. He was also known for his... Uh, integrity. He, he was a man that could be trusted. Ed knew that Uncle Al would be, could be entrusted with his property. Well, my uncle held that position probably for about 15 or 20 years until he retired, and he loved that job. He, 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 throughout that time, he kept Ed's trust, even though there, lots of Ed's employees came and went. But Uncle Al was able to stay there, and he, he managed Ed's household well. See, when it comes to putting someone in charge of one's property, it's key that the ones that lead that property and manage that property have some experience and, more importantly, that they are people of integrity, people of honesty, people of good character. Now, if that's true from a human perspective, how much more is that true when it involves our God and his household? which is another name for the church. So I'm going to ask, if you haven't already, open your Bibles there. That, and if you, like Pastor Andrew said, there are some Bibles that we provide that are in the chairs in front of you. I didn't take the time this morning to look at the page number where 1 Timothy 3 is at, but I'm sure you can find that. Just head uh, right a little bit past Romans, keep going forward, and you'll get to 1 Timothy eventually. 
uh, before you get the end. But if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible that's in the chair in front of you. We'd love for you to have it as our gift. We, we would like everybody to have a Bible in their home. So I'm going to ask you, if you have it, to turn to one of the 66 books that make up the Bible, a book called 1 Timothy. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been making our way through this book, which was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a younger friend of his, named, not surprisingly, Timothy. And we've made it to the end of chapter 2 last week, so today, like I said, we will be in chapter 3, the first seven verses especially. If you just look up ahead a little bit in verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul tells us what he, what he hopes to accomplish by writing this letter. These words are familiar to you now because we've mentioned them a number of times already. He's writing, it says in verse 14, so that you might know how one, how someone ought to behave in the household of God. And so these are, we could say, Timothy's marching orders for for, for making sure that everything is functioning the way it ought to in a church, which he calls here the household of God. Well, back at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is going to address particularly the people who will lead the household, the managers of the household, what he calls here the overseers of God's household, the church. So follow along as I read that for us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired. We thank you that it is authoritative. We thank you that it is inerrant. We thank you that it is powerful. Thank you that it transforms us and changes us. And we pray particularly this morning that it would do that work of transformation in our lives and that as we take a look, a closer look at what this passage that we've just read in particular says to us, and says to our church that you would press these truths deep into our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, we, we'll see the kind of people that God entrusts with his house, with his household. That he entrusts with the task of managing his household. If business owners and companies always have an idea about the kind of people that they want to lead their organizations organizations that are, that are confined to the material world, organizations that have a limited shelf time, it'll definitely be true then that the God of the universe will have a specific idea on the kinds of people he wants leading his household. It shouldn't surprise us. A household 
that in opposition to the material world, a household that is eternal, a household that has an unlimited shelf time, namely the church. So what exactly is God looking for in people that will manage and lead his household? Well, this passage helps us answer that question. The background to this letter, originally, and back when it was first written, and when it comes to leadership, is that the church there in a city called Ephesus, even though it had, um, the church had maybe been in existence by the time of this writing, maybe for about 12 years, had been overrun by bad leaders, false teachers. The church was floundering. It was, it was being weakened by false teachings. And so Paul leaves Timothy there, tells us in chapter 1, to, to firm things up, to strengthen the church, and, and to ensure that it stays strong, and that it's led by strong, godly leaders. Leaders that were committed to the truth, rather than falsehood. Leaders that were committed to the pure gospel. In chapter 1, he talks about the kind of leadership that has started to infiltrate the church. Says, uh, he describes them as people who were teaching a different doctrine in chapter 1, verse 3. Or people who had wandered away from the truth in verse 6. Uh, and, he, and he actually points out some people that he had already dealt with. And, and he says that these are people who had made shipwreck of the faith. Down in verse 20 of chapter 1. And, and so the church uh, that Paul had left t- Timothy to, to, to fix was filled with unqualified and ungodly leaders. And so in chapter 2 then, Paul starts to give instructions on what things ought to look like in God's household. He starts by talking about prayer. And we saw last week that God calls on men in particular to, to, to take the lead in prayer. And Pastor Andrew did a, a wonderful job to show us that this is in keeping with God's design from way back at creation. Pre-sin, pre-fall creation. And if you missed that sermon, I, I encourage you to listen to it. You can find it on our website. So now, Paul moves on to talk about the kinds of people that should lead God's household. What kinds of men can God entrust with leading his people in the particular role of oversight? He reinforces the fact that these are men here. He, he talks about the husband of one wife. And, and, and all the pronouns in this passage are all masculine. Again, like we said last week, this does not mean that women are incapable of leading. In fact, women are called to lead and to teach and to serve in many different aspects of church life. But in this particular area, Paul goes back to created order to say that men ought to take the lead when it comes to being overseers and elders. And the challenge that Andrew left with us last week is, are we willing to submit to God in this, even though it's, we might say that that's not trending in culture? Are we willing to submit to God's word? Anyways, I see four qualifications of the kind of men that God wants to lead in this specific role. These are not negotiable. You'll notice that. You'll see the word must show up in this section a lot. This is very serious. We must follow these instructions if we want a strong, gospel-reflecting church. Number one, God's household must be led by men who desire a noble task. Every word 
in, in, in that heading is important. This, this comes actually right out of the first verse. I didn't have to work too hard on putting this part of the outline together. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The importance of this is highlighted by that first little part. This saying is trustworthy. When Paul wants to emphasize something, he always uses that little formula. You'll see that a number of times in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. And so here he says that men that aspire to the position of oversight in a a church desire something good and beautiful and noble. This is an important calling. And you see the importance of it really right through the New Testament as the early church started to develop. Uh, As the church started expanding and and growing in those early days, and as the original 12 disciples uh, started, well, they started falling off the scene, number one, but they couldn't handle the growth between just 12 people, the, the church started to develop a structure by necessity. And so the right kinds of leaders were needed. So places like Acts 14.23, for example, it says that Paul and Barnabas would, as they went from church to church, as they traveled and started churches, they would appoint elders, it says, in every church. And, and they became an important part of the church. Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul, in his greeting there, he says he, he greets the saints who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. We'll talk about deacons next week. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, Paul says that the church should respect those who labor among you. And who are over you in the Lord, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, it describes these people as those who give watch over your souls. And and so this is an important role, this role of being an overseer of God's household. I should just say as an aside that you... You'll see the words overseer and, and, and elder in some of those verses that I just read. And those are two different words. Uh, there's two different Greek words there. But they're actually used interchangeably in the New Testament. They both mean the same thing. It's talking about the same kinds of people. And here in our church, we call those people elders. But overseer maybe talks a little bit more about the task that they do. Elders do the task of oversight. But the two words are, are synonyms. And so it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So you have aspires and desires. So this is talking about people who have a desire for that office. And and it's saying it's a good desire. It's not wrong to aspire to that position in God's household. And and In fact, it's a good thing. And now now it has to be done with the right spirit. It has to be done with the right motivation. And in fact, usually that aspiration must be prompted by God in the first place. It can't be an aspiration that comes from a for de- desire for prestige or, or for power or for position, but from a desire to serve. Jesus actually gives the right balance in, in Mark chapter 10. He's talking to his disciples. He says, he, he called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. So they do have authority. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Uh, the avenue towards greatness is to go down, to serve. Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. John MacArthur puts it nicely. He says, ambition for office corrupts. Desire for service purifies. So different here between ambition and, and desire. One purifies 
an ambition for office, a prideful ambition, may put it, corrupts. But notice that while it's noble and good to desire that position with the right motives, it's also a task. It's, it's work. It involves labor. It's a noble task. It's a good work, but it is work. I had one friend who always used to say when he talked about this verse that these kinds of people aspire and desire a task in which they will perspire. <laughs> Talk to anyone that's ever been in that position here, and they'll tell you that. If you take that role seriously, it takes effort. It requires some degree of exertion. It takes time. There's sacrifice involved. And it's laborious. It's good, it's noble, remember that, but it's not always pleasant. Decision-making can be agonizing. Preparing exhortations and lessons can take effort. Giving admonition and warnings can be taxing and stressful. Being an elder slash overseer is a demanding calling. In Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul writes, he says, just of his own uh, exertion and labor in this role, he says, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's the goal. There's the result he's looking for. We want to present everyone mature. For this, though, I toil. This I toil. Struggling, he says. But how does he struggle? It says he struggles with all his energy, with all of God's energy that's infused into him, that he powerfully works within me. He toils, but he toils with the energy that God provides. So it's a noble task, and God will give us what we need in order to fulfill the task, in order to do the work. So, God's household must be led by men who desire a noble task. Secondly, God's household must be led by men who have an exemplary reputation. Men who have an exemplary reputation. This is really the heart of the section. Therefore, an overseer must be. And then it goes on to list a number of things there. But notice that it doesn't say an overseer must do. This is who an overseer is. This is all about his character. This is who he must be. There are certain things that must characterize someone that aspires to this office. And let's make sure we note that with the exception of, uh, of one thing in that list, able to teach, these are essentially qualities that should characterize all Christians. There's nothing really that stands out here. Nothing on the list that the Bible doesn't talk about in other places as the kinds of people all of us who claim to follow Jesus should be. And that leads us to say, especially for those who will lead God's household, that God is looking for people who are like Jesus. People who are Christ-like. And as we think about this, in terms of the world we live in, having people of character in positions of leadership is actually swimming against the tide of our culture. It used to be that what was true for the church was also mostly true for the world. You think of historical leaders like Lincoln and and Churchill. Part of what made them good leaders is that they were men of conviction and character. Now, they they had their own faults, and, and, and there are exceptions to that as well in terms of dictators and such. But for the most part, at least in more democratic systems of government, character was important when leaders were elected. You look for people that had integrity and honesty. But sadly, that's not always the way it is anymore. There's a not-so-subtle drift to where we've now gotten to a place where character does not matter anymore. 
You look at our own country and our own province and you look now especially to our neighbors to the south and you start to wonder what's going on in terms of what we look for in leaders. And even Christians seem to be blinded to this. To be frank, I'm totally puzzled by it. I, I don't get it. Now, I don't pretend to know everything about politics, especially in the South. And I, I actually try not to know a whole lot about politics in the South. But we've actually come to the place where we, where we totally overlook and seemingly brush off character. Character seems to have no bearing at all. When, when different revelations are made, we just brush them aside. Oh, well. Lack of character somehow gets explained away as unimportant. Well, I suppose we shouldn't be all that surprised that that sort of thing happens in the world. That that's the trajectory in which the world is going. It's not getting better. But that cannot happen in the church. Character does matter. Character matters a lot. Reputation matters. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This is not a suggestion. He must be above reproach. And that first one really is the overarching quality here. It it kind of sums up everything else on the list. Now it doesn't say that he must be sinless. No human leader is without sin, but he must be blameless. There's a difference there. No one should be able to bring a charge against him. That's literally what the word means. He should be exemplary. A model. Someone who's worth following. In other words, he should have a good reputation. He should be above reproach. Actually, if you look way down in verse 7, at the end of the list, reputation comes up again there. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So whether it's from inside the church or from outside the church in the community, the man who wants to lead God's household needs to have a good reputation. Is this a high standard? You bet it is. But this is the church. This is the household of God himself, our our creator, the king of kings, the lord of lords. I've been at three funerals in the last eight days. And in all of those funerals, we heard about the Christian integrity of those who passed away. These precious saints were definitely not perfect. But whether it was Amy or whether it was Ken or whether it was Wayne, they all had exemplary qualities that endured them to their loved ones and to their friends. Of all of those three, I knew Pastor Wayne the best. He was a colleague. He was, I saw him almost every day for a period of four years or so. And that means I did know some of his flaws. But I, and especially cheering for the Oilers, but uh, that was just a minor one. But I can say, without any hint of exaggeration, That Pastor Wayne was above reproach. He was humble, he was teachable, he definitely was a servant, and he had a good reputation, both in the church and in the community. And that made him a good, a godly, and therefore a qualified leader of the household of God. And he remained that way right to the end of his ministry. Now, I'm not going to explain every quality on this list. In fact, I'm thinking of doing another message on this next week to kind of hit on those uh, qualities a little bit more. But, but let me just read it again. And as I was looking at this list this week, I was struck at, at how this list, especially in verse 2 and 3, has actually become exclusively Christian. Like I said before, and, and almost the polar opposite of people who aspire to leadership in our world. 
Just listen to verses 2 and 3 again. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And really, that word means a one-woman man devoted to to, to one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You think about that list, and as I said, there's really nothing exceptional here. It does require loyalty and devotion and single-mindedness. It requires the ability to think clearly, to be orderly, to be controlled. It requires that someone love the Word of God so much so that he wants to teach it. It requires that someone be willing to open up their homes to strangers, to be, to be a gentle person. And it requires that he be the kind of person that avoids excess. Not a drunkard. Not violent. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. This is the kind of reputation that God desires for those who would aspire to be a leader and a manager in the church. God's household must be led by men of exemplary character. Thirdly, it must be led by men who serve with fatherly care. Paul kind of stops listing those things there at the end of verse 3 and then he starts up again in in verse 4. He must... Manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Here's that household language again. And what better illustration than to compare it to a family household? The way a man leads in his family household is an indication of how he will do in God's household. It just goes from the lesser to the greater here. If he does well in that smaller a more intimate setting, you can reasonably expect that he'll do well in the larger setting of the church. I like the way, though, he puts it at the end of verse 5. Here, Paul, almost uh, unintentionally, describes something of the function and the role of an overseer elder. It's mostly this section, like I said, about who you are, about your character, but, but almost implicitly here you see something about the task. And he does it by means of a, of a rhetorical question. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care? How will he care for God's church? That's what a godly leader does. He cares. He's a caring man. Paul, writing earlier to the elders in Acts 20, 20, verse 28, says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's writing to the elders here in Ephesus again, uh, earlier actually. But he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. An overseer cares for God's church. That, that word that's translated in, in, in 1 Timothy as care only occurs one other time in the New Testament. Uh, the word I just read in Acts 20.28 20, is a different word for that, and it's translated care as well. But this particular word is only only shows up one other time, and it's in a very familiar story, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. A Jewish man gets robbed, and, and he's, he's, he's lying on the road, dying, right there on the side, and two of his fellow Jews, uh, religious leaders at that, come upon him, but they just kind of look at him, and they keep on going. They don't stop to help him. But a third man, a hated-by-the-Jew Samaritan, of all people, Stops and helps the man. But here's how Jesus describes what that man did. This is in Luke 10, verse 34. 
says he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. There's the word. That's the picture. That's what an elder ought to be like. He ought to be the kind of guy that will care for God's household. Just like that Samaritan had compassion and and cared for the injured man. Like a loving father would care for his children. He's known by his fatherly care. Well, there's one more kind of quality that God is looking for in those who will lead his church, and that is that God's household must be led by men who have been transformed toward humility. You see that there in verse 6. Again, more by implication. It says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Why does Paul say that a leader should not be a recent convert? Well, according to this verse... It has to do with pride. When someone's a new believer and they very quickly get put into a position of leadership, there's a temptation for that new believer to become proud and lifted up, haughty. You see, not enough time has passed in order for them to develop the proper kind of humility, recognizing that they've been saved by God and that there's no room for boasting. If they aspire to a high position as a new believer and they're put into that position, says that they could become puffed up with conceit. They're vested with an authority that that has not yet been earned through observation of their character. And that can lead to pride and conceit. And here, sometimes the fault lies with us as churches. As churches, we can sometimes be tempted to rush new converts into places of leadership. You might know people that you think, even right now, wow, if only that person would get saved. He'd make a great leader in the church. He's got great leadership and organizational skill. He's got got really good charisma. We need a guy like that. Well, Paul puts the brakes on that kind of thinking. Not to say that they will not be a good leader at some point, but says, do not put that kind of, a recent convert into a position of leadership. Just wait. Slow down. A person needs some time to grow in humility. Commentator Homer Kent summarizes it well when he writes, to quickly elevate a young believer is likely to cause them to inflate in pride. You lift them up too fast, put them in a position of leadership, they're likely to get inflated in terms of their pride. So it's best to wait. God wants people who are spiritually mature to lead his household. Spiritually mature. Not mature in business or in charisma. People who are spiritually mature. With with greater maturity comes greater humility. Well, just one more little addendum to this. Just notice that at the end of those last two verses, both mention the devil. He warns against condemnation of the devil in verse 6, and then in the snare of the devil in verse 7. When it comes to church leadership, we need to know that the devil is always lurking. The great threat greatest threat to the devil is the church. The stronger the church, the less influence the devil has. The weaker the church, the greater influence the devil can exert. So what better strategy for the devil than to take down the church, than to lob grenades at leaders? Weak leaders make for weak churches. But godly and honest 
and upright and Christ-like leaders make for strong, make for gospel-fortified churches. While aspiring to and desiring leadership in God's household is indeed a, a noble task. It's a good thing. And it's not something that men need to shy away from. Would that many more men would aspire to the position of leadership, to the office of overseer elder in God's household. But God has been, I think God has been kind to give us a high and lofty standard here. He wants men who are like Christ. Men who have a good reputation inside and outside the church. Men who are caring. Men who are nurturing. Men who are protective. And like a father who serves his family, men who are marked by humility. This is God's beautiful design for his household. This is how God designs for his church to function and to be effective to its own people and to the community. When the church is led by men of prayer and the word, men who are honest and upright and above reproach, and when it's filled by both men and women of faith and love and holiness, as it says earlier in chapter 2, the result will be a strong and robust church. A household that in the words of chapter 3 verse 15 is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Strong words. That's what we all want. Isn't it? Let's keep praying and working to that end and counting on the strength that God gives us. Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminder of the fact that you care for and that you preserve your people. That you care for and preserve your church. And that you care for your church by providing leaders who care for your people. It really just comes full circle. You truly are the good shepherd. And you've sent a shepherd in the person of your son, the one who has given his life for the sheep. And now, in your kindness, you raise up godly men to shepherd and to lead your people. We are truly thankful for your great provisions and for your gracious protection and guidance and love and care. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.